0: Welcome to Expert Insights. This session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on Wednesday, the 20th of September, 2023. The topic is Mental Health Treatment Adherence. On the panel we have Professor Sam Harvey, Psychiatrist, Executive Director and Chief Scientist at Black Dog Institute. Dr. Matthew Coleshill, postdoctoral Fellow at Black Dog Institute. And Cass, our lived experience representative. Chairing this session is Dr. Sarah Barker.
1: Okay, welcome everybody to our Expert Insights webinar on mental health treatment adherence. To begin with, I'd like to start with an acknowledgement of country. So Black Dog Institute would like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as Australia's first people and traditional custodians. We value their cultures, identities, and continuing connection to country, waters, kin, and community. I'm in Naam or Melbourne, and I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of the land, and I extend that respect to the traditional custodians of all the lands where people are Zooming in from today, as well as I pay my respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here with us too. We pay our respects to elders past and present, and we're committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health and wellbeing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. So, I would like to introduce our three uh, panellists today. We have Professor Sam Harvey, um, Dr. Matthew Coleshill, and Cass. So, can I ask you, Cass, to begin by introducing yourself, please, if that's okay? Thank you. Yeah, sure.
2: Um, So, I'm Cass. Um, I have lived experience of um, mental health issues um, and suicidality. Um, I was diagnosed with bipolar type 2 and um, I've been uh, working in the background with Matt on um, this treatment adherence project. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Cass, for joining us
1: today. Sam, can I ask you to introduce yourself?
3: Yeah. Hi, Sarah. My name's Sam Harvey. I'm the Executive Director and Chief Scientist at the Black Dog Institute. Clinically, my, my background is as a psychiatrist, and I still see patients in the clinic that we run here at the Black Dog Institute. Um, prior to training as a psychiatrist, I also trained and worked as a GP in London some some 20 years ago now.
1: Wonderful. Thanks for joining us today, Sam. And Matthew, could I ask you to introduce yourself,
4: please? Thanks, Sarah. Um, yeah, my name is Matthew Colesell. I'm a postdoctoral fellow here at the Black Dog Institute. Um, my background's mostly in health psychology, um, sort of things like digital interventions and mental health, but also uh, treatment adherence.
1: Okay. Thank you all so much for joining us today. So, Matthew, you've been researching treatment adherence for many years. What sparked your interest in this area?
4: Um. I mean, I sort of started off very interested in things like the placebo effect and pain perception, which was my um, first sort of couple of my PhD and research um, and my first postdoc. Um, I then wanted to get a bit more kind of clinical experience and happened to start working on a, a sort of project looking at medication adherence in gout, um, which was a little bit of a, an, odd, an odd direction, but then just became really interested in it from that. And I think the thing that uh, sort of sparked my interest was Kind of, you always think that developing new medications is the the goal of medicine, and kind of finding treatments for things and what's effective and what's not. Um, but sort of getting into this area and realizing that that's sort of only half of the the battle, and the at least in the case of gout, there was a very effective medication that was you know very limited side effects. People, you know, it was something that people should find pretty fine to take, um, but incredibly poor adherence. Um, and it was just sort of a very interesting problem that really related to psychology where, yeah, there was something that could help people, but it was really hard getting them to sort of take it consistently. Um, yeah, so I think that's where I got really interested in in medication adherence and treatment adherence.
1: Terrific. Thank you. And um, so what is treatment adherence and how is it measured?
4: Yeah, so... um. <sighs> Treatment adherence refers to the the extent to which a person's um, behaviour, whether that's the classic example is always going to be taking a pill every day or something like that, but it can extend to anything from kind of sleep hygiene to diet, exercise, um, CBT. Um, So it's the extent to which their behaviour with those those treatments corresponds with the agreed recommendations from the clinician. Um, It's often further defined into intentional and non-intentional adherence. So intentional is when people... know, knowingly don't follow the recommendations, whether this is, you know, not taking pills on a certain day because of concerns around side effects and that type of thing, or non-intentional would be, um, you know, just forgetting and kind of not being in a routine and that type of stuff. Um, yeah, then it was, was how it was measured, um. I mean, there's quite a few of them, really. Um, The classic ones would be things like self-report or clinician assessments, but these tend to be quite biased, even though they're pretty commonly used. Um, The ones that tend to be used that are a bit more... um, Kind of objective are things like pill counts. So this would be multiple visits with a clinician where the number of kind of pills that somebody has are counted. Um, you get some pretty fancy things like MEMS, which is this little little cap you put on top of a a bottle with pills in, and every time it's opened, that's recorded. So you can kind of get this this really granular data that we've done in a couple of projects. So you you literally see the time of day that people open it, and you can really look into their routines. Um, you can do these big claims um, kind of and. Analysis where you look at things like the PBS and you'll get individual records for de-identified people, and you can see how often they're they're filling up scripts for certain treatments and calculate adherence based on that. So, you know, if somebody was meant to be taking a pill a day and the pack size is 30, you should see them refilling that roughly every 30 days. Um, and then even things like biomarkers, so. If somebody's in a hospital or in quite a sort of laboratory setting, you can take blood tests, look at the concentration of drugs, um, or look for biomarkers. So, indications of kind of improvement in the condition that's related to the action of the medication or the treatment itself.
1: Sure, sure. Thank you. So... How can we best understand treatment adherence then? Is there some kind of conceptual model for this?
4: Yeah, it tends to be conceptualised as a few different stages that, that, that interrelate quite a lot. So initially you have initiation, which is just someone's been given the, the treatment recommendations, do they start that or not? So do they begin you know, the sleep hygiene or the CBT? That's generally just a, a yes or a no. Um, from there, there's two stages that relate quite closely. So you have implementation, this is looking at things like the amount that somebody is kind of following the recommendations the change in their behavior. So, this would be things like, are they taking all of the um, you know, doing the exercise every day, or following the CBT every day, or you know, taking a pill every day, and the proportion to which they had kind of adhere to that behavior, and that's generally considered as a percentage. Um, so, fifty percent adherence would be somebody doing this behavior half the time that they've been recommended to. Um, and then persistence is kind of the final stage. So, it's how long people carry on that behavior for. It's not as related to sort of how much they're doing it. Somebody could you know only be doing fifty percent of what's been recommended, but if they carry that on. On for say a year, they'd be considered to have persisted for one year.
1: Okay. Okay. Thank you. And what has your research found hinders and helps with treatment adherence?
4: Yes. Um, it- Treatment adherence really varies a lot between all the different types of treatment, as well as different conditions. So, um, it's quite hard to be both broad and not not get too specific with stuff for certain types of medical, or certain types of uh, medication, or conditions, or different treatments. Um, one of the most common ones, though, tends to be age. Um, it does you do find some paradoxical findings at times, but by and large, the older people get, the more adherent they become to the treatments they've been prescribed. Um, Generally, this is thought to be because of health concerns due to aging, but also um, older people tend to have comorbidities. They're often taking a few different treatments simultaneously. And if you think about the the kind of change to your routine, having to do one thing every day is always going to be the biggest change. Um, Whereas if if you're going to be taking two pills, if you've already made the changes to routine to take one, adding in another one isn't that much of an additional kind of hassle to your routine. So you tend to find that, um, yeah. These sort of things are related to people um, being more adherent. Um, a couple of other big ones tend to be things like relationship with the clinician. So, trust and communication, the amount of follow ups people have with the clinician that prescribed the treatment. You get a lot of social factors. So, things like people having a spouse or a family, or and particularly family support with their condition or taking, you know, engaging with the treatment tends to be a big predictor. Um, medications, uh, affects themselves, so side effects, the complexity of the treatment. So, you know, do they have to do it at certain times of day? And does that change at all? Um, and even things like views of the condition and how necessary people think um, receiving treatment is and the impact the, tr- uh, the condition has upon their lives
1: sure sure yeah that would be a big influence i imagine too yeah thank you matthew so sam how do matthew's findings fit with um around treatment adherence trends how does that fit with what you see in your work as a psychiatrist
3: yeah no look it fits very closely and like most clinicians i've sort of been on a bit of a journey around my views on treatment adherence over time, um, you know thirty odd years ago when I was sort of tumbling out of medical school, medical schools were at that time and probably still are uniquely good at producing doctors who at times have sort of somewhat arrogant paternalistic views around treatment and and so You know, you sort of assumed that because you were writing something on a prescription sheet and giving it to someone, that this would just automatically happen. And then, you know, for many years, I worked in a hospital setting in a number of public hospitals around Australia. And you would very regularly have patients come into hospital and you would just restart them on their usual medication. And suddenly there were all sorts of complications. You'd restart them on their normal blood pressure medication and their blood pressure was suddenly down in their boots or you'd restart them on their antidepressants and they were having all sorts of side effects. And over time I learnt to sort of say, you know these tablets that you said you take, really? And, and very often you would find that when you're in hospital and you've got a nurse dishing it out exactly at the time, that that was far and above what they were doing at home. Um, and, and so these days it's it's much more of a, a a conversation i have with people i'm seeing in the clinic both at the time that we're making plans together about treatment but also you know one of so the black dog clinic for those that don't know we we see a lot of patients for second opinions and so we we have much more time with patients because they're often complicated and we're stepping through it gradually. And so, you know, we have the time when we're going through the trials of different medications that on paper, it says that they've tried. And then when you say to them, you say, you know, okay, tell me about that. And they sort of say, no, it, you know, it made me feel terrible. So even though it looks like I was on it for six months, I only took it for about a month. And um, so I, I think over time and with experience, I would now have a much more realistic view of of what, treatment adherence is, and, and that aligns very clearly with what Matthew was describing mm, from those mm. studies.
1: And what about people's common concerns about treatment then, Sam? What do you see there?
3: Look, it is very individual, but I think to, to put it into clusters, I think within psychiatry, there is a, a group of people that just don't like the notion of being on medication, even if it's a medication that causes no side effects, they don't like the way it sits with them. Um, there is also a, a group who will have less than 100% compliance, as as Matthew described, because of genuine side effects that they're experiencing from that medication that aren't being adequately addressed. Uh, and also, I think there is a, there's a group of people that don't adhere to the treatment because it doesn't work and that they're voting with their feet somewhat. And, um, it, you know, they shouldn't be taking stuff that's not working. So, I think there's there's a range of reasons, but broadly, it, it they're the sort of the key categories yeah, that I tend to hear about.
1: Cass, which treatments do you have experience of? And what's your experience been of sticking to just, this- to prescribe treatment as well as some of the challenges too?
2: Yeah, I, so from a young age, um, uh, from about 14, I started having symptoms um, and initially was um, diagnosed with depression. Um, so I started on an antidepressant and although that sort of kept things at bay, it didn't really get on top of my mental health symptoms. Um, I... Yeah, got to my 20s and I had, I believe, a manic episode um and decided that I was feeling great and I'd go off my antidepressant. Um and yeah, unfortunately ended up in hospital at that point. Um and then I was in and out of hospital for about three months, um, just trying all types of different medications. Um, nothing seemed to really be working. Um I yeah, the, the issue was that I was quite suicidal um, and nothing seemed to help. Um so yeah, they were trying different types of antidepressants, um, uh, I think um some antipsychotics. Um finally I got to a doctor who said, you know what, I think you're very sick, um, and let's try ECT, and that's what worked for me. Um then I got diagnosed um later um for bipolar tattoo and was given lithium and it was um yeah like <laughs> just had this really stabilizing effect which um made it so much easier to to get through <laughs> um yeah, so quite a few there. Sorry, I forgot your second question. <laughs>
1: that's all right. No, some of the challenges with um yeah, some of the challenges with the adherence to treatment and medication.
2: Yeah, so I think um yeah, it's interesting what Matt said actually about like getting older and being more adherent because I feel that's um very much the case for me. Um I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that I just didn't understand that I was mentally ill. Um, I I really blamed myself a lot for the way I was acting um, and I didn't understand that the antidepressant was um, something that I actually needed to, to function. Um, so there were times, um, particularly when I was unwell, um, that I just stopped taking it because um, I just sort of thought to myself, well, what's the point? Um, Yeah, but then I would end up having to go back on it anyway. Um, Yeah, so that was probably the main uh, issue I had with adherence. I guess just these days it's probably more to do with side effects Um, because I realize and I understand I've got this illness. I um, understand that I need to take medication for it because that helps me stay um, um, functioning. But, um, yeah, like one of the side effects that I just find very hard to tolerate is the fact that I've gained a lot of weight. Um, and, yeah, that that's yeah. something difficult to sure, yeah, compromise sure. with. Yeah.
1: So – I'd address this question to all of you. Many people have been prescribed SSRIs for mental health conditions when they were teenagers without a whole lot of say in the matter. How important is it for people to have voice and choice in their treatment plan? And I guess I might start with you, Cass, talking about some of those side effects that are difficult and challenging too, if you could start.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, very important. Um, I mean, I get the fact that, yeah, that, there are differing levels of wellness, um, and that in some circumstances, um, uh, it's, yeah, maybe a bit harder for people to understand the reasoning, um, especially if you're not well in the head, um, behind why you need to be taking that medication, um, or, you know, you might have certain views about it. Um, but yeah, I, i think you know it's important to include the person because it's their body and their mind um in that decision making um and yeah I I have recently had the experience um where yeah like I have been trying to get off some medications and try different medications to see if it will help with my weight and the psychiatrist that I've been seeing for a while um doesn't seem to particularly want to help. Um, she just says, "Well, it's your medications are working at the moment, mm. so leave it alone." <laughs> um, and it's made me resort to looking sure. for a different psychiatrist. Sure. Yeah. So, sure, thanks, Cass. Sam,
3: look, I think this issue of empowerment and shared decision making is really the most important lesson to come out of this topic. In in, in my experience clinically, I mean, right. The the reality is in, in psychiatry, it is rare for there to be a single treatment for uh, a problem that is far and away the only treatment that should be considered. Almost always what you face in a clinical situation is saying, well, there's, you know, there's a variety of options here. There's a variety of medication, there's a variety of non-medication op- options, there's various combinations. And quite apart from it just being the right thing, also in terms of trying to ensure that that compliance happens and that 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 you can have a sensible conversation ongoing, you know, I would always sit down and say, "Okay, here's what I think's going on. Here's what I think the options are. Here's." Some of the risks and benefits of the different options, in terms of you know, I think both option one and option two are likely to be effective, but these are the different types of side effects we might consider. What do you think? And um, we we actually we did a trial of this within our clinic at the Black Dog, and where you involved um, people in decision making about their condition, it made a massive difference in terms of treatment adherence. But but I would say it also extends to that sort of example that Cass was talking about. I think, um, you know, we we have to be asking about side effects regularly. We have to be asking about compliance and we have to sort of be embracing the idea that sometimes patients will say, you know what, I think I want to try something else. And to be honest, at that point, there's two options. Either you work with them on that or they're going to go off and do things by themselves. And and so I think that sort of shared control is just part and parcel sort of clinical practice these days in general, but I think particularly within mental health.
1: And respect too. It comes down to respect, doesn't it? For, yeah, 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 great. Thanks, Sam. Matthew, your thoughts on that, yeah, voice and choice in treatment?
4: Yeah, completely completely agree with with Cass and Sam. Um, shared decision making, which, sorry, for some reason, the phrase shared decision making just doesn't roll off my tongue very ra- readily. Um, it's just, yeah, it's really important for what we hear from people. And just from sort of the factors I was mentioned before, this relationship with the clinician is, is paramount and really relates to shared decision making. Um, and you know, having that quality of communication where people are given sort of different options by the clinician who explains them in detail and kind of the, the potential benefits and risks of them and allows them to then make the decision of what would be best for them based on their preferences is it's just really important. And the people who that we speak to in sort of our studies who didn't get that, they're the ones who tend to have the worst experience. And um, speaking to that point of sort of younger people, um, it's a little bit hard to disentangle. But as Sam kind of mentioned before, 30 odd years ago, medicine was pretty paternalistic and it was kind of the clinician made the decision and and the, the person being prescribed something just had to kind of follow along and they were expected to do that um it's hard to say, sort of, the people who were kind of prescribed particular antidepressants maybe 30 odd years ago that we speak to, who just kind of felt it was thrust upon them, um, if those kind of, if that was related to the age or just the fact that they were prescribed in that kind of period where that was you know, really bad for this in prescribing. But, yeah, you know, we still hear about it today. So I think um, there is also a degree of kind of, as Sam said as well, um, as clinicians kind of uh, age into the role and get a little bit more used to things, they kind of become more understanding of these type of factors. And but yeah, either way, shared decision making is um, really, really key to sort of um, to people's experience. And yeah, how although, they want to take the treatments.
3: Although, Sarah, I will just add, just you know, if I if I go back and put on my old <laughs> dusty GP hat, like I, I can imagine my former self saying. Yeah, like fine. You're you've got an hour with a, with a new patient. It's great that you've got time to have those conversations. You know, back when I was a GP, I had seven and a half minutes with with a patient, and so and the the issue of of their low mood might have only been brought up in the last minute of that seven and a half minute. So um, I, I get that it isn't always easy, but um, little things can make a big difference. Black Dog Institute has. And, and others like Beyond Blue and the College of Psychiatrists have great information sheets. You know, a little thing like a GP saying, you know what, I reckon this will help, but here's some information, have a read about it. If you're not sure about it, come back next week and we'll chat some more. Like that's, or, or just sort of saying, you know, when I'm giving the repeat prescription, actually, you know, how's it going, any side effects type thing? Like just, it doesn't need to take long to at least open up the conversation and and we routinely hear about what a difference that makes.
1: Okay. So, Cass, many people are prescribed treatments or interventions other than medication. What about treatment adherence to psychological therapies? So, things like activity scheduling or mood monitoring or daily exercise. Some of these might be hard, especially if medication doesn't seem to be working. What are your thoughts about what helps there?
2: Yeah, I, I guess it depends on the person. I mean, I think it's, it's a bit like Sam said like you've got these categories of people um for example my brother unfortunately no matter how hard i've tried to uh, you know persuade him to see a psychologist and work on some of that stuff he just will not do it because he <laughs> is not open to it um for me um it's been extremely helpful um yeah i mean there are a number of things that i do um to keep myself well um and yeah, I mean that all has to work together I think. Um it's, yeah, it's I mean for for bipolar I think it does help a lot with medications but but it does um all those other factors you know have um do impact your mental health as well. So um so with the psychology stuff, I don't know like I've just always been that type of person that I guess is uh, quite driven and I do the work, <laughs> um, and I know that it won't it, it really be effective if I don't put in that work as well. And as hard as that is, like it's something you have to do to kind of, you know, um, to actually have it help you somewhat. So, um, yeah. Can, I, I, can
3: I put it on the record that I am the total opposite <laughs> of Kat? One 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 of the things we had to do when we were doing our clinical training is you went and, and you did some Cognitive behavioural therapy to sort of to understand about it, and I was terrible <laughs> at doing the homework every every fortnight, I'd be going back and I'd be there on the bus thinking, "Oh man, I've got to make up this sort of this mood diary for the last two weeks. um but but I think the really interesting thing about adherence with psychological therapies is is it goes both ways. like yes, there's a question about to what extent is the individual able to adhere to the homework and all those other things, but also one of the things we find to what extent, is a clinician able to adhere to to what should be happening? You know, we know that there's certain t- structured interventions at work, but, you know, lots of things get in the way of, of that actually happening as it should. And I think it's a real challenge for us as clinicians to to sort of turn the adherence question back on ourselves and, and say, actually, am, am I doing what we agreed at the start here or, or have things drifted a bit?
1: And in terms of what helps with motivation then, Cass, to take medication and adhere to psychological interventions, what kinds of – you talked about the drive you have. What are the some of the things that help with your motivation then?
2: A lot of it, I think, has to do with – so I actually have a background in nursing. I'm not a nurse anymore, but <laughs> I've got some of that medical knowledge. Um, <clears throat> so I think um, – and, you know, like – yeah, once I was diagnosed, you know, I sort of researched about it and tried to understand what was going on with myself. Um, I think that having that information, um, yeah. And especially it it really helped as well when, yeah, because I was young, when I was younger, I believed that it was because of it was something because of me, there was something fundamentally wrong with me, um, shifting that, um, perception to the fact that, no, it's this mental illness that's going on in my head and the way that I address that is by taking medication. Um, yeah, that that really helped me to yeah, stick to medication. That's a powerful shift. Yeah. Yeah. Great, Cass. Yeah. yeah.
1: Sam, what about ideas and strategies you have and that you find helpful in your work to support people with treatment adherence for mental health, both for medication and psychological
3: therapies? Yeah, look, there's not I I haven't found a silver bullet for this. I think it's a variety of things. I I, I do think um, that sort of shared ownership of of decisions is really important uh, and the explaining of the why. Um, Sometimes these things can't be rushed, and, and I think sometimes it's really important that we as clinicians don't inadvertently send the message that if you don't take my pill, I don't, you know, I'm not in this together with you and so, you know, very often I'll, we'll have a conversation and I'll say okay, well let's, you know, come back in a couple of weeks and let me know where your thinking at and we'll make some decisions then um, to give people permission to go away, come back with further questions I, I think also and this goes back to a point that Cass was making earlier um, like it's it's an ongoing discussion. And so, you know, very often I'll be saying to people I'm seeing in a clinic, you know what, let's try this for a month. And if at the end of that month, you, you tell me it's not working or that the effect that it's having is not enough to offset the problems it's creating, then we'll stop it. And I think people, for a variety of reasons, will think, if I go down, this is a one-way street. If I start taking this antidepressant, I'll never get off it. Um, and so I find I spend a lot of time saying, "You know what, this is yep, we could we can try it. If it doesn't work, we'll stop it." And sometimes when you have patients for a while and they learn that you stop stuff that doesn't work, they're much more willing to to try other things because you know that's that's the relationship. what What I find really frustrating, is when I see people in the clinic and they'll say, yeah, I've been prescribed this for the last three years. And you say, well, does it help? And I say, no. And I say, well, why, 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 why has this been going on? Or, or even worse, when new stuff just gets added on top and it's not like, okay, well, let's stop this before we start something else. And I think, you know, if, if you can be honest and and have that those sort of discussions and that sort of relationship, then that makes a, a, a huge difference in terms of the quality of information you get. And the outcomes,
2: yeah. um, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it's got to do with that relationship, like that that therapeutic relationship that you develop. Um yeah, you you, you know this, yeah, it, you have to be able to feel like you're working um together rather than separately. um, yeah. Sam, what approach do you take with
1: patients when someone really needs a medication, in your view, or perhaps even in their view too, but motivation's extremely low to take it?
3: So there's a spectrum here. I mean, there are some situations where our concern about somebody and their ability to engage with treatment is so high that we might be you know, saying, "Well, actually, we need to bring you into hospital so that we can get you started on whatever treatment." Now, that's a relatively rare occurrence, but that—that that is at that end. Of, there is this end of the spectrum where your level of concern gets so high that that um, that those sort of actions are required. But that's pretty rare. Well, um, by and large, I I think
2: you know we. Or, we know that sometimes these are these are difficult
3: decisions for a variety of reasons and so sometimes they take time sometimes they take sometimes you have to use a motivational enhancement type discussion where where you sort of you know particularly if you've got someone who's you know very depressed or um overwhelmed by anxious ruminations those things can make decision making very hard. And, and so sometimes you have to sort of help an individual in those situations really step through the okay, well, where are you at the moment? You know, what are the things that we've addressed that, that we really want to help? Um, you know, if we're talking about medication or talking therapy or whatever, what, what, what do we anticipate would be the benefits of that? What are we concerned about the risks? What can we put in place to try and mitigate some of those concerns? okay, let's make a decision and let's stick to it. And um, sometimes that works. Uh, Sometimes, you know, involving the family in that discussion can really help. Um, And so if you've got time, that's great. You can work through it. If, you know, if you've got someone who's so profoundly depressed, they're not eating and... A treatment needs to start that day. Then obviously you don't have time, and you've just got to do do sometimes what needs to be done. But most most of the occasions, you've got time and resources to be able to sort of get them to a place where they will at least try it. And then of course once once they start to see benefits, which you hope will be there, then that makes it easier. Of course, the really difficult situation is where you've. Expended a lot of time and energy getting someone to the point of trying something, and then it doesn't work. Um, but you know, if you've been honest along the way, then that that should still be okay.
1: Cass, I don't know if you can talk to that. Have there been times where that kinds of situations happened um, for you, where perhaps you know you've tried different things that haven't worked? What's helpful in terms of sticking to medication in terms of when there are bumps and challenges like that?
2: I guess I've always like just held on to hope that eventually and I, I put a lot of trust in, you know, um, health professionals that, you know, they're trying their best to do what's best for me. And especially when they have had those conversations with you. Like they explain to you what they're actually doing um and what you're gonna be going through. Yeah. I mean, particularly that time that I was in hospital and it yeah, it felt like nothing was working and no matter what they tried, nothing was working until they did the ECT. And I yeah, like I really just wanted to give up. I was just like, is is this my life? Like what what? <laughs> um, but it's just I think it was just about trying to hold on to hope because and and but also like Looking at the people that were around me, so I guess having supports, um, but that includes the health professionals who were saying, you know, we will, we will find a solution, we will get you there.
3: Yeah, I think that's a really important point that that story of 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 hope. And I think, um, you know, one of the myths that sits around mental illness is that somehow it is less treatable than other disorders, and. You know, having come from gen, part of the reason I shifted from general practice to psychiatry, like general practice, huge part of that was treating sort of chronic relapsing conditions and the results you could get, the life-changing results you could get from treating somebody's mental illness far surpassed what you would see when you were tinkering around the edges with their sort of chronic medical conditions, yet somehow I find many patients come in with this narrative that that they're somehow broken and that we're not going to be able to fix it, or that you know all we're going to be able to do is just sort of somehow dampen the emotions. And I think it's it's hugely important to sometimes be having the conversation that goes along the lines of, you know what? We've seen lots of people describing similar things to you. We've got really effective treatments for this. I have, yeah, I'm very confident that we can make a lot of those symptoms better. We might need to try a couple of different things, but this is, you know the reason we're doing this is because we think this can make a big difference. I don't know whether people haven't been told that before because I think often they need to be told it multiple times. I think that that's a hard thing to catch on to, but it's a really important message. And of course, we can say it as as clinicians. Sometimes it's much, much more effective, <coughs> excuse me, when you have people with lived experience able to do that. And, One of the things we're really hopeful about is that moving forward, we end up with a mental health care system where we have many more peer support workers, where part of the group that can be having a conversation about hope and about different options are people who have had a lived experience and can talk about that. And that's so much more effective than anything I could say in those situations.
2: It's funny actually when I um went through the ECT, I wasn't actually given any information about it. And I well they I think they gave me this piece of paper, but I was so unwell that I just couldn't read it. <laughs> and um I was so petrified because of things that I'd seen on TV. I'm like, what are they going to do to me? Am I going to be the same? (laughs) Um, And it was the thing that really helped me was actually talking to another patient that was in the hospital who had had ACT um, and her experience of it. And that really helped relieve um, my anxiety.
4: Just with the peer support um, from talking to people with uh, experience taking SSRIs, that was definitely something that came up quite a lot. That. Going back to clinicians and talking about side effects, they didn't always feel listened to, depending on the nature of that relationship. And a few of them really spoke, said that they had peer support workers, and they spoken to them, and it was really validating to hear, you know, oh, this one really worked for me, and oh, but that one didn't work for me. And to have this sort of realization that it wasn't just them that this didn't work for, and that actually ones that they found beneficial, other people hadn't, and just to see the sort of range with this and talk about side effects, and um, yeah, that was really came through in some of the interviews that people had found that hugely beneficial to share their experiences and hear about other people's. Um, And just on top of what Sam said before about um, sort of balancing expectations, there's a bit of an effect of when things don't work, it kind of compounds negative expectations and makes future things less likely to be effective sometimes, particularly around antidepressants. Um, So having those kind of really balance expectations communications with the clinician where you're saying that this one might not work but it could work it works for these people just so you're kind of not putting all the eggs in one basket and then people it doesn't work for people and then they move to something else and you kind of they're a little bit sort of i don't know unhappy or sluggish about things compared to oh well that didn't work let's try the next one um and just moving through things
1: okay that's really interesting about yeah that powerful voice of lived experience with adherence to yeah treatment Um, So, Matthew, what does the research suggest would have the biggest positive impact on patient and client treatment adherence and willingness to persist with medication for mental health concerns, but also for um, non-medication interventions too?
4: It is hard to pick up just one that isn't sort of a social factor or something like age just because it pops up so much in the data. But, um, yeah, Shared decision-making and kind of that shared ownership of the treatment does seem to be the, a really big predictor and a big effect. And it's also something that, albeit clinician time, can be a, a bit of a problem at, sometimes for this, but it, it's something that's it's feasible um, and quite sort of uh, manageable to be incorporated into clinical practice. Um, yeah, having those kind of open and balanced discussions about different treatments and giving people options to decide between, um, yeah, that's a, a really powerful uh, effect on adherence.
1: Yeah, that your experience, you've obviously had the um, experience of shared decision making. Uh, Cassie, you've talked about that. Um, yeah, how yeah, how important is it to having someone on your team? You've mentioned that a few times, having someone on your team. How, how important is that, um, yeah, for I guess that continued hope and trust and persistence there?
2: You might not get along with everyone um, and that's just huge. I've been to like GPs that I haven't particularly liked and like, I don't like the communication style. Um, I didn't feel like, I felt like they were rushing me. So I didn't go back to them. I went and found a different GP. Um, yeah so it's I think it's important that you feel that yeah one one you can communicate with them um and you feel that you know that they're communicating with you effectively um and yeah, two, I guess that they include include you in that decision decision making um even if it's them saying no, like at least you know explain why <laughs> why you're saying no, um so that we can understand um, and go, okay, well, I, I get why you've made that decision. Yeah,
1: great. And for, I guess one of the things I'm hearing um, the three of you saying is for um, non-prescribing clinicians to be checking in around the experience of medication and side effects and what it's like and um, people's experience with any treatment issues, that's to, would, would that be something also that you all think is important
3: then too? Yeah, I think it's important both ways. You know, I think, I like if I'm prescribing medication to someone, and one of our clinical psychologists is seeing them more often than me. I love it if they're asking about the medication and how it's going, and and including that as part of what they're doing. And and likewise, you know, when I when I see someone who I know they're they're meant to be having CBT, I'll be asking them, "How's it going? And what are they doing? And how they finding the homework and things like that." That sort of, you know, the, the the treatment packages are meant to just be that. They're meant to be a package, and, and, and so I think everyone sort of should have an interest in what the other parts are doing and understand uh, how they might uh, be impacting. Yeah.
2: yeah.
1: What are your thoughts, Cass? There.
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess personally, um, I've never. <laughs> <laughs> had a psychologist that's really asked me about my medications. Like I might bring it up, but um, they've, yeah, not we've not really discussed it. But, um, yeah, like I guess in terms of something like my um, weight, like that would be quite helpful, um, even if it is medication related. I'm sure, you know, like there's some, you know, psychology stuff behind it that might be helpful for me. Um, yeah, but I could definitely see that it could be, um, yeah, like a good role for psychologists psychologist um, in terms of treatment adherence. Um, just, you know, it's, it's, it's like I said before, like when I was younger, like I had a different mindset. So just like maybe changing that mindset a bit or helping them change that mindset a bit, then maybe they'd be a bit more willing to consider taking medication.
1: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, Matthew, anything you'd like to add there?
4: Oddly enough, that was actually some uh, clinical psychologists sort of supporting people um, with medications was something that kind of inspired some of the research um, I've been doing at Black Dog. Um, Because talking to clinicians um, at the Black Dog Institute, a few of them were saying that, part of the burden of sort of supporting people through side effects was falling to them. Um, so they were kind of coming up with strategies for, for how to manage the side effects in people's day-to-day lives and that type of thing, and sort of behavioral changes they could make to um, sort of overcome the impact of these side effects. Um, but kind of, as, as Cass said, despite this experience, because Black Dog is quite a, you know, everyone talks to each other and it's quite a close-knit um, sort of group of clinicians, in the in the you know, outside of the Blackpool Institute, with people who were taking antidepressants, they there was limited experience of this. They'd sometimes talk to their clinical psychologist about the medications they were taking, but there wasn't a huge amount in the way of um, support being given to sort of help people manage any of those side effects. Um, so yeah, something I think to consider as a maybe a, a wider intervention. Um, potentially training clinical psychologists more in this to see if that would uh, help people with um, yeah, taking medications and giving those tools to clinical psychologists so they feel prepared to yeah, have these great. discussions no, as great well. Great
1: thoughts, Matt. Thank you. So, um, Sam, what are the top strategies you see as making the most powerful difference to treatment adherence for mental health conditions? If we kind of sum up, what, what would you... Um,
3: okay. I'm going to say four things. I think one is a general mindset around shared ownership of decisions, and that someone not taking the tablets that you prescribed doesn't shouldn't be seen as some sort of slight on you or your decision making. that's just that that's life and and you that's how things that's how decisions should be made in a partnership. Um, I think the second one is around sort of explanations and and you know explaining your position explaining the options giving people as much information as they can to help them make decisions i think the third thing is asking about side effects and and um, you might have to ask about that more than once because the nature of some of the medications we prescribe a lot of the antidepressants some of the mood stabilizers Some of the side effects that bother people the most are some of the more difficult ones to talk about, Um, sexual side effects, weight, fatigue, things like that. So, you you know, you need to ask about them and you need to ask about them repeatedly so that people feel comfortable um, giving you honest answers. And it has to be, you know, it's an ongoing dialogue. Um, for those patients who we're, we're lucky enough to have an ongoing relationship, that that's an ongoing dialogue around these things. And um, sometimes it takes time to get things right. Sometimes things change and you've got yeah, to adjust over yeah. time.
1: Thanks, Sam. And Cass, what about your top tip for clinicians
2: to assist people with treatment adherence? Um, I think Sam's pretty much covered it. <clears throat> um but yeah, I think the main thing is um communication. Um, I mean, yeah, like I know it's it can be difficult because yeah, these days we're so tight on time and <laughs> um yeah, we're in such a rush that, you know, things get missed, I guess. But um yeah, I, I think the better you you can and clearly you can communicate. Um yeah, I mean, the happier and the more, yeah, like the more trust you'll build and um, yeah, probably the more adherent it would be too.
1: Terrific. Well, thank you all for a very interesting discussion. Black Dog Institute and others have lots of different evidence-based online tools that can be used to support um, you with supporting um, your patients' or clients' mental health. So, my compass is a really great online tool for mild to moderate anxiety and depression. That's on the Black Dog Institute website, and it's got a whole lot of different modules that you can do in a non linear order, um, which is really great um, CBT. This Way Up Clinic has excellent depressions for different kinds of anxiety and also for mood concerns as well, and that's evidence-based. And Mood Gym by the Australian National University has interactive skills training for depression and anxiety, which is also um – really, really good too. In terms of looking after your own mental health, 10, or the Essential Network for Health Professionals, is a wonderful resource. It's available on the Black Dog Institute uh, website, and I really point um, practitioners to look at the Navigating Burnout module, which is one of the newer modules, and it's um, it's excellent, I think, and really relevant and, and timely during this uh, pandemic. Connecting with the Black Dog Institute, um, we have a whole lot of health professional trainings. Um, These are both online and in person, and you can also follow us on social media as well. Yeah, thank you very, very much, everyone, for coming today, for sharing your great expertise. Thank you, Cass, Sam, and Matthew. Thank you, Matthew, for the research um, that you're doing in this area too. And um, thank you, everybody, who's come today um, and listened. And this will be available online. by podcast and webinar for you to catch up with again if you'd like to. Thank you very much, everyone. I really appreciate you sharing your
0: expertise and sharing your time. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.